This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Welcome to the World Shared Practice Forum. I'm Dr. Judith Palfrey, the Director of the Global Pediatrics Program at Boston Children's Hospital. Our topic today is the treatment and prevention of diarrhea diseases in children. And we're very, very fortunate to have with us Dr. Chris Duggan. Dr. Duggan is the Medical Director of the Center for Advanced Intestinal Rehabilitation. He is also a Professor of Pediatrics and Nutrition at the Harvard Medical School and Professor of Nutrition at the Harvard School of Public Health. Chris, you've been doing work in diarrhea for an awful long time. <laughs> how, how long have you been working on this? Well, I, diarrheal disease got me into the field of gastroenterology and nutrition, actually. As a medical student, I spent a uh, very um, uh, important time in my life working on an oral rehydration solution on the Apache Indian Reservation, and it really opened my eyes to the important role of diarrheal diseases and child health. Now, I just was looking at some statistics, and it looks as if diarrheal disease still causes somewhere between 10 and 15 percent of childhood deaths around the world. Is that right? It's unbelievable how common diarrheal disease is and how uh, commonly child death is related to diarrheal disease. Diarrhea causes more childhood deaths than AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria combined, which is an amazing fact that many people don't know. Now, the good news is that deaths due to diarrheal disease have been declining for many years now. Several years ago, the total numbers of childhood deaths due to diarrheal disease was about 3 million, and now it's less than 750,000. So there have been important improvements in how we manage children with diarrhea to reduce their chances of dying. So are these deaths, you know, happening in all the places around the world in the same rates, or are there differences around the world? There's huge disparities between when and where children die from diarrheal diseases, and it also matters where within a certain country you live and whether you're a boy or a girl. Sadly, girls have higher rates of death due to diarrheal diseases as they do to other causes of death, unfortunately. Interestingly, of all the causes of diarrheal diseases and childhood deaths, nearly 50% of all childhood deaths are in only five countries of the world, India, Nigeria, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Pakistan, and China. So, you know, kids get diarrhea all the time. Why would you die of diarrhea? Well, in settings where resources are poor or adequate medical care is not available, children can die from the acute episodes of diarrhea because of electrolyte imbalances and dehydration or hypovolemic shock. More chronic causes of death due to diarrheal disease are related to the interaction between undernutrition and chronic diarrhea or persistent diarrhea. Those children won't die of an acute dehydration, but will die of their infectious complications of undernutrition. So we'll get back to that a little bit later, but tell us now, you've, you've worked on oral rehydration um, interventions, sure. you have some ideas about what to do when you have uh, a deathly ill child. Tell sure. us a little bit sure. about that. 
Well, the beauty of oral rehydration solution is that it's an incredibly simple and straightforward public health intervention. Regardless of the age of the child, the age of the adult for that matter, the etiology of the diarrheal disease, oral rehydration solutions can effectively treat dehydration and prevent dehydration in almost all causes of diarrheal disease. So that's one of the major public health advantages. If you have a simple solution that's widely available and widely used, you can prevent many of the deaths due to dehydration. So tell us a little bit about the history. How did, how did this come about? How did we learn it? Because, you know, I think if you get diarrhea, you put an IV in. Right. right. Well, the history of the development of oral rehydration solution is fascinating because unlike many of the high-tech solutions in medicine, which we think of as emanating from academic medical centers in our country or in Europe, oral rehydration solutions first were developed in the areas of the world where cholera and other diarrheal diseases were killing vast numbers of people. And those included uh, areas of India, in Calcutta specifically, and what is now Dhaka, Bangladesh. Those academic medical centers took observations that people made in both animal models and at the bedside and designed oral fluids that would adequately replenish water and electrolytes for severe diarrhea. Can you tell us a little bit about the most effective way to treat diarrhea? Well, I mentioned earlier that one of the beauties of oral rehydration solution is its simplicity. And part of the simplicity and management of a child with acute diarrhea and dehydration is that with very well-known parameters, you can assess whether their chi that child has mild, moderate, or severe dehydration. And depending on how severely dehydrated they are, that determines treatment options. So can you tell us a little bit more what treatment you would select for each of those? Sure. So children with mild to moderate dehydration can be always managed with oral rehydration solutions. And their symptoms of dehydration are very predictable. So a child with mild dehydration may only have an increased heart rate or uh, mild mucosal dryness of the oral mucosa. A child with moderate dehydration may have a prolonged skin fold or perhaps some delayed capillary refill. And a child with severe dehydration will have altered mental status and lack of responsiveness. Those children are not candidates for immediate oral rehydration solution, but need intravenous rehydration to treat hypovolemic shock. The next few slides will show in a time-elapsed fashion the successful management of a child who presented to a hospital I used to work at in Cairo, Egypt. And at the beginning of the morning, children would pour into this clinic, having traveled all night on buses and trains to be adequately treated for diarrhea and dehydration. And as you can see at 9 o'clock, this young infant has moderate dehydration. In other words, if you felt his mouth, it would be very dry, and you can see the top of his skull has a sunken fontanelle. His eyes are sunken as well. But with adequate rehydration, namely five milliliters of fluid that is provided every minute or so, this child will become increasingly rehydrated. You can see at 9.15, he's increasingly thirsty. At 10 o'clock, he looks much, much better. He's got an adequate amount of oral rehydration solution. And by 12 noon, he's completely rehydrated and um, has successfully avoided the complications of dehydration due to diarrheal disease. And at 1 o'clock, he's back nursing uh, on his mother's breast. With, as you know, human milk is the best form of infant nutrition, especially for children who are recovering from diarrhea. That, that's a pretty dramatic sequence. So I'd like to turn now to our colleagues around the world. Please remember to first state your city and country location. The question is this, uh, Dr. Duggan has presented 
the mild, moderate, and then the severe uh, categories. How are you all around the world making those distinctions? What are the parameters that you're using? Are you finding that looking at mild, moderate, and severe uh, is helpful for you in your treatment decisions? Now, you keep talking about this ORS solution. What is it? How is it made? How do I get hold of it if I'm a physician at the bedside? Tell us sure, a little bit sure. more about this. Well, oral rehydration, as I mentioned earlier, was designed in areas of the world where cholera was an important cause of deaths due to diarrhea. And as such, it, the original solutions had the same amount of sodium that were included in lost sodium due to cholera stools. And so there was always this principle of matching the sodium and water content that's lost through diarrhea with what's taken in from oral rehydration solutions. And what if I can't measure uh the electrolytes? What if I'm in a situation where I just don't have that? Well, most people are in actually that situation, and not only can they not measure stool electrolytes, but they can't measure the child's electrolytes. But again, many, many studies have shown that oral rehydration solution properly administered successfully corrects hyponatremia and hypernatremia. The newer solutions, however, have a slightly reduced amount of sodium, but it therefore reduced the osmolarity of the solutions and seem to work better to improve rehydration and have less vomiting. Now, what, don't you need some sugar? You do. So what you're pointing out is the important f factor of sodium glucose transport at the level of the epithelial cell. So as you see here, the concentration of sodium in the stool output in three general types of diarrheal disease, cholera on the left, enterotoxigenic E. coli in the middle, and rotavirus diarrhea on the right. And on the black bar, you can see concentration of sodium milliequivalents per liter, and the yellow bar looks at stool output in cc's per kilo per eight hours. And you can see a general trend where sodium concentration and stool output generally correlate together. And this is an important take-home message of gastrointestinal physiology. In other words, where sodium goes, water is sure to follow. Taken at the level of the epithelial cell, you can see that sodium and glucose get co-transported from the lumen of the gastrointestinal tract into the epithelial cell, and from there, sodium is inserted into the blood vessel by sodium-potassium ATPase. Sodium, therefore, goes from the lumen of the gut through the enterocyte into the bloodstream, and water follows both through the enterocyte and between the enterocytes. The interesting thing about sodium glucose co-transport is that's not the only mechanism through which sodium can be co-transported through the epithelial cells. There are sodium amino acid-based co-transporters that also effectively transport sodium from the, from the lumen of the gut into the bloodstream. So are those amino acids included in the ORS? Standard ORS only includes sodium and glucose as the major mm -hmm. co-trans molecules. But any of these new ones have? Some of the new ones have included some amino acids, but it's important that the total osmolarity of the solution still be maintained, that it's not a hypertonic mm -hmm. solution. So since the ORS is coming through the GI tract, um, are we at a little bit more safety margin in terms of uh, getting 
brain swelling and that type of thing? Oh, absolutely. One of the one of the major advantages of oral rehydration solution is that unlike intravenous fluids, which can be given at too rapid a rate and lead to edema uh, or overhydration, oral rehydration solutions are therefore more physiologic when they're administered. But you have said to us that there's a situation where the child is so uh, lethargic and really just cannot take by mouth that we need to go to IV. What, what do we do then? Where, where do we go? With oh, absolutely. Intravenous rehydration is clearly of critical importance when you have a child with hypovolemic shock. The, the uh, beauty of ORS is that many children, if they are treated early, for instance at home before they seek medical attention, some of that severe dehydration can perhaps be averted. Now, we see these lovely little packets of ORS. How do people get them? And in a minute, I'm going to ask our, our friends around the world about whether they have any issues of, of getting them. But could tell us a little bit about how a hospital prepares or a clinic prepares uh, to have enough of the ORS solutions uh, to be available if there is a cholera epidemic or there are problems. Sure, sure. No, those are great questions. Oral rehydration salts are distributed in packets throughout most of the world's countries. And I've traveled to many different countries and found them in rural shops, urban shops, really um, wherever that there are people and there are pharmacies and small, even small village stores, they often carry these packets of oral rehydration salts. In hospitals or academic medical centers that take care of large number of patients, obviously uh, they don't use the packets so much as pre-mixed solutions. So here at Boston Children's Hospital, we use a commercial product that's already mixed in a water form. So maybe if I can turn to our colleagues around the world, and again, please remember to state your city and country location. The question is this, are you able to get hold of the oral rehydration salts uh, and the IV solutions that you need uh, when children present with uh, this range of diarrhea? Are there any situations where you're finding yourself constrained uh, by a supply chain or difficulties getting the materials? Let's just change uh, gear a little bit. Uh, you now have a, a child who's been treated uh, they're doing a little bit better. When do you start feeding them and how, how do you get uh, the continued feed uh, going? Treatment for diarrheal disease, although we've to this, to this point talked more about oral rehydration solution, really does include both continued nutritional management of the child while you're rehydrating them. For many years in the 1950s and 60s, uh, prolonged gut rest was the recommended therapy for children with diarrheal diseases. And that's a, a natural response because uh, indeed if you starve a child with diarrhea, they will have less stool output. But the health of their enterocytes will suffer. When you make a child NPO or nil per os, uh, they have enterocyte um, atrophy and their absorptive capacity is worsened. So for the past 15 or 20 years, we have strongly recommended continued feeding during diarrheal disease. So as soon as a child is rehydrated, they should be resumed with breast milk or their usual diet that they had before they were sick with diarrhea. You know, when I was training, it was the brat diet, right? Yes. The, uh, bananas, rice cereal, applesauce, and tea. 
Uh, anything to that, or is there uh, something else that you'd recommend now? Well, the BRAT diet is, in fact, lacking in several important nutrients. Uh, there's inadequate protein, inadequate fat, and low amounts of vitamin D and A. So it's not a good diet to recommend for a prolonged period of time. Um, having said that, Diet modifications are common um, across many different cultures, and in fact, uh, there are reasons to suggest that some of the foods in the BRAT diet might be helpful. Rice, for instance, uh, might have some anti-secretory processes, and that's why rice-based oral rehydration solution is helpful in patients with cholera. But I think physicians and caretakers do a disservice to their children when they overly restrict dietary intake. A child should be encouraged to eat more when they're recovering from diarrheal disease to prevent untoward nutritional consequences. And then what about probiotics? Are we pushing the yogurt and things of this sort? And the probiotic literature is a very interesting one, and there are some among us who feel that probiotics supplementation with acute diarrhea does reduce the duration of diarrhea. However, if you look at the difference in diarrheal duration, it's about on the order of a half a day or perhaps a day of illness, which is somewhat marginal. Um, if you compare the cost of probiotics with um, the effect, it's not clear to me at least that this is an important intervention. And, and you mentioned, you know, getting the child back onto breastfeeding, uh, but what about the situations where they're no longer breastfeeding, but, you know, is there a time to introduce the dairy products? Uh, any time to hold off on that? Sure. The, uh, the literature concerning both the combination of lactose-containing foods as well as foods with cow's milk protein is pretty clear-cut. One concern was that children with prolonged diarrhea would have persistent lactose malabsorption. But it turns out if you're a relatively well-nourished child, the degree of lactose malabsorption is relatively minor after an acute episode of diarrheal disease. So it is only in those children with a widespread enteropathy or severe undernutrition do we recommend lactose-free feedings after acute diarrhea. The issue of cow's milk protein has also been addressed because of the potential concern that an acute enteritis might somehow predispose a child to have an allergic response to cow's milk protein. But that does not seem to be the case either. Well, now, we've talked a lot about uh, the various kinds of uh, feeding. Uh, I'd love to turn back to our colleagues and uh, have them please remember to state their city and country location. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you do uh, in your practice in terms of getting children back onto uh, their regular diet, if they're diets, uh, intermediate diets that you go to, uh, and when you uh, try to get them back onto their regular uh, feedings. So uh, that's a little bit of a segue into uh, something you seem to like to talk about. Um, what is it from A to Zinc? <laughs> well, A to Zinc corresponds to two important micronutrients. And the literature from the 1990s and 80s really pointed out the critical nature of two important nutrients. Number one, vitamin A, and number two, the mineral zinc. So first off, for vitamin A, Important studies performed by a number of colleagues in the 1980s suggested that vitamin A supplementation was an important way to reduce all-cause child mortality in areas of the world where vitamin A was a poor component of the diet. And to this day, intermittent high-dose high administration of vitamin A every six months or so to children under age two has reduced deaths due to a variety of infectious illnesses. So that's an important child survival story that has been told. 
Certainly deaths due to diarrheal disease have been prevented by widespread high-dose vitamin A supplementation as well. How's that working? Where, where's it working? Well, there are some countries that have rolled it out quite well, and they've shown impressive changes. However, as the decades have passed on, there's, there is a school of thought that suggests as diets have become more diverse, they've questioned the role of whether high-dose vitamin A supplementation is still an important component. And those are middle-income countries, such as several countries in South America. Countries in Sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, still, I think, uh, show good evidence that intermittent, periodic, high-dose vitamin A supplementation. So, so the mechanism of the vitamin A action, what, what, what is that? Well, vitamin A is an important nutrient to maintained intestinal and other epithelial cell lining. So one school of thought is that vitamin A deficient animals or children might have increased permeability and therefore are more susceptible to infectious gastroenteritis as well as respiratory infections. And then zinc, where, where's it working? What, tell us that story. Well, zinc is also a critical nutrient for both mucosal immune factors and systemic immunity. And again, in areas of the world where zinc uh, components of the diet are not high in bioavailability, children with low zinc stores don't grow as well, they have stunting, and they have higher rates of pneumonia and diarrheal diseases. Now, unlike vitamin A, high-dose Zinc supplementation is toxic. High-dose vitamin A is stored in the liver and can be distributed to the body as time goes on over the months after dosage. But zinc actually has to be given pretty regularly on a daily basis. So that's hampered uh, the public health's ability to distribute zinc in a, an effective way outside of capsules. Okay. Well, again, uh, around the world, uh, please remember to state your city and location. Uh, be very interested to learn uh, whether you have programs in vitamin A and zinc supplementation and how you're finding them uh, working out. So we've talked uh, about treatment. Uh, we've talked a little bit about prevention. Are there other preventive things that, that you'd like uh, for the group to know? Sure, there are a number of important uh, and new uh, areas of diarrheal prevention, and they include uh, obviously some of the important virus and uh, bacterial vaccines that are being distributed. So for instance, in the United States, it's routine for children to receive the rotavirus vaccine. That vaccine is now increasingly being used in a number of countries in Sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia to reduce the burden of diarrheal disease. So that's certainly an exciting innovation that will come out as that vaccine is implemented more widely. There are vaccines on the horizon against other forms of enteropathogenic and enterotoxigenic E. coli infections that also contribute to the global burden of diarrheal diseases. But even before those vaccines are implemented and, and brought out, there are important nutritional and child health interventions that we can make. Perhaps the strongest one is encouraging exclusive breastfeeding for the first six months of life. For many years, the World Health Organization and other policy-making bodies have suggested that, that is the most important nutritional component of early childhood development. So exclusive breastfeeding and delaying the onset of complementary foods until six months of age is an important component to reduce the burden of diarrheal disease. Hand washing is important. Toilets are important. Safe disposal of, uh, of uh, wastes is an important component of reducing the burden of diarrheal disease.
So in your experience, what are some of the, you know, the management uh, challenges or even management uh, mistakes that, you know, you'd like to kind of point out to people? Sure. Well, one of the fundamental aspects of uh, accurate and adequate care for a child with dehydration is shown in this slide. And it's an important component that strict and accurate ins and outs are measured. So on the right, you can see a child who's lying in a cholera cot. And these are, as the name implies, designed for children with high rates of purging. And all of the stool output is measured in a bucket, as shown in the left. And by measuring exactly how much stool output comes out, the physicians and nurses taking care of that child can accurately provide exactly that amount of fluid to replenish the child and treat, as you can see, the severe dehydration that's occurring in this child. So accurate measures of ins and outs is really a cornerstone of successful therapy. Mm -hmm. The adequacy of urine and uh, tissue perfusion is key to how appropriate and how adequate rehydration has taken place. Uh, Nonsensible losses can be estimated, as you know, but a part of the management has to be ins and outs, so all of, out, all of the outputs and all the inputs. The second cornerstone is continued feeding to provide adequate nutritional support to a child who is recovering from acute diarrhea. So oftentimes if we're in the uh, throes of a, uh, let's say a rotavirus or a cholera epidemic, there's just so many children right, <laughs> coming right. to the coming to the clinic or coming to the hospital. Sure. Any tricks in terms of how to manage large numbers of, of children with these kind of problems? Sure. Well, the principles of medical triage occur and can be applied in those situations just as they are on the battlefield. And so you need to take advantage and take uh, great care of identifying those children who have severe dehydration, very quickly plug them into intravenous rehydration routes. Those children with less severe dehydration can be managed as outpatients with oral rehydration solutions. One of the beauties of oral rehydration solutions is that mothers and fathers can be taught how to administer this fluid at home and prevent need for admission. You've worked a lot with children with HIV. Tell us about what happens when you have a child with HIV who then has a diarrhea episode like this. Sure. Well, those children can be, as you can imagine, quite challenging to manage because children with HIV infection are at risk of developing not just acute diarrhea but persistent diarrhea, and persistent diarrhea can cycle through with undernutrition. Turns out that undernutrition is a huge risk factor for childhood death due to diarrheal diseases. So with HIV infection and uh, diffuse uh, enteropathy due to HIV infection and or chronic gastrointestinal infections, the management uh, is very important to do quite well. Many of those children require inpatient hospitalization. Uh, they need treatment of intercurrent infections. They need to make sure that appropriate antiviral therapy is on board, and they need appropriate and important nutritional supplementation to get them through their infection. So one last one. Talk to us a little bit more about the treatment of the children who have persistent diarrhea. Sure. Who are they? Uh, how, do, how do they get identified? And then how do we treat them? Yes. So persistent diarrhea has been def defined by the World Health Organization as diarrhea that lasts for more than 14 days. And obviously, that's not a large number of children around the world. Most children recover from diarrheal disease between three and seven days. But children with persistent diarrhea are at high risk of subsequent death, so they need to be highlighted as people who need extra attention. And with diarrhea that lasts for at least 14 days, you can imagine that because 
because of anorexia, in other words, poor appetite, and chronic malabsorption, these are children at high risk of severe acute malnutrition, chronic malnutrition, and a variety of micronutrient deficiencies. So persistent diarrhea, the importance of nutritional management and providing adequate calories, protein, fat, all the specific micronutrients is of vital importance. And how many of those children actually have uh, say a super infection with uh, an invasive bacteria of some sort? They can have bacterial infections. Cryptosporidium is an important uh, component of diarrheal disease that's persistent in nature. That's what recent studies have shown. Children with persistent diarrhea and malnutrition, as you know, can also succumb to other non-gastrointestinal infections, whether it's complicated by pneumonia or malaria in those areas of the world where malaria is endemic. So all, all um, Physicians and nurses taking care of children with persistent diarrhea need to be tuned into all those possibilities. So thank you, Dr. Duggan. This has been a wonderful review of the treatment and the prevention of this incredibly important problem, which is diarrhea in children around the world. Thanks so much. Thank you. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.